This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales, because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again and if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support. You are the ones who make Veritas possible. Tonight's special guest is Dan Sherman, who spent almost three years as an intuitive communicator while serving in the United States Air Force. He will tell us about his training and what he learned from his alien contacts while working for the NSA's Special Ops or more precisely, Grey Ops, which is beyond black. Dan Sherman will be with us shortly. To listen to tonight's full interview, become a Veritas member. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, click on the subscribe button and receive instant access to this and all our interviews. Why wait? Don't you think it's time to listen to the full story? When you become a member, you can listen to every program, audio and video hundreds of hours in CD audio quality and take Veritas with you wherever you go. Don't wait any longer. Be proactive. Subscribe today. And visit the Veritas store where you can purchase our futuristic metal-cased 8GB USB drives with Seasons 1 or 2 with bonus material. And coming soon, Season 3. You can also purchase MMS. And speaking of MMS, let me share with you a very important and personal story. A few weeks ago, our 11-year-old Beagle woke up and could not walk. 
I tried to get her to stand up and she'd fall every time. She would stare at me almost as if saying, what's happening to me? We thought finally old age had taken over, but this happened rather drastically. I took her to our vet and was told that it was probably a virus and that we needed to take her to the neurologist and she would probably had to go through surgery. But even that may not cure it and the dog would suffer anyway. My wife and I had to discuss all the painful alternatives, including euthanasia, if it meant this would end her suffering. We were also very concerned because our four-year-old daughter absolutely adores the dog. Telling her the dog went to heaven would break her heart. A few days went by and there was no improvement at all. We took our daughter to school, returned home, and decided it was time to end the dog suffering. My wife took what was meant to be my last picture with the dog. As I'm carrying her to the car to go to the vet, I got an idea. I told my wife, if MMS worked for me, could it work for the dog? I went back inside and started researching. To my surprise, I found that some people had been successful in administering MMS to their pets. So I told my wife to give me a chance to try it on her. I found a protocol for pets and the specific weight and started in the morning and in the evening. The next day, the dog seemed more alert. The following day, she was trying to stand up. On the third day, she stood up with difficulty, but she did. Fast forward four weeks. Now the dog is almost back to normal. In retrospect, I should have documented the before and after, but I didn't think she was going to make it. I didn't want to remember that phase. But I do have a picture that my wife took the day I was supposed to end her suffering. I will post that picture for you to see, along with a picture of her now, fully recovered. MMS has worked for me, and now it worked for our beloved pet. I know this sounds like a commercial, but I also know how many pet lovers listen to this show. So I had to let you know in case you were ever faced with this situation. I tried it, I'm glad I did, and it worked. If you have been listening to Veritas for some time, you know one of my priorities is to include our members in the direction the program is taking. During last week's newsletter, I gave you a preview of things to come for 2012. For next year, I want more clear and defined goals. How do we do that? Well, first of all, we have to look at a compass. Then we look at the cardinal points, north, east, south, west, etc. Our compass is Veritas, the radio show. Our cardinal points are our topics, UFOs, geopolitics, paranormal phenomenon, parapolitics, etc. With your input, you have submitted those cardinal points in the way of the topics you most enjoy and want us to cover. That was the first step. Now that I have identified the topics you want to discuss here, we can focus on the next and final step, which gives us the answer to what direction or cardinal points we are taking and how much we should focus on each next year. Isn't this the most logical way to involve all of you? I think so. Look, I know I can't please everyone. You may have a different preference than someone else, 
But if we take this to a vote, which is exactly what we are doing, starting right now, yes, right now, tonight, go to our website, barrytestradio.com, log into the member section and click on the link to the poll so you can vote. You will see the topics there. Then you will select them in order of preference. I will leave the voting active for a few days. The results will be announced the following week. So what do we get out of this, you ask? Let's say that the topic of UFOs and ET comes at 40%, followed by geopolitics at 20%, etc. Again, this is just an example. This means that when I'm planning the interviews for 2012, I will devote their respective percentages to the interviews I will conduct next year. I'm very excited about next year's direction. I'm more than anything for your involvement. This allows me to keep my finger on the pulse, to be in touch with you about what you want to hear, what you want to learn, and the new areas to explore. In addition, just to give you a few more glimpses of things to come, you are my eyes and ears around the world. Coming soon, Veritas Vox Populi. What is Vox Populi? It's the voice of the people. Let's say you have a camera and are currently at any of the Occupy Wall Street protests. You know the mainstream media will filter the information. Well, you interview the people on behalf of Veritas Vox Populi, post it on YouTube, and if we deem it worthy, we'll have a page where it will be featured, similar to CNN's I Report, but without the filters. I used Occupy Wall Street as an example, but how about a UFO sighting, where you film the craft and then interview witnesses? How about chemtrails, hidden archaeology, alternative cures? Let's say you're taking a vacation in the Amazon or somewhere in Peru or Egypt. The possibilities are endless. Vox Populi is coming soon. What else? Well, a number of you who listen are musicians. Some of you have approached me asking if I could feature your music on the show. Unfortunately, if we do it with one, we have to consider everyone, and we don't have the ability to do that right now. But I want to start a contest to feature your music. More details coming soon. But in essence, if you are a musician, I want to write a song that relates to what we discuss here, or even a theme song for Veritas. That's fine too. I will be accepting the songs, then our listeners will vote. There will be a first, second, and third place. I'm still thinking of, of what prizes to offer, but you get the idea. So if you're a musician and have the talent, get your guitar, keyboard, drums, or whatever instrument you use, voice or no voice, and start creating a song. How did I get this idea? I recently met a young man at the East City Ranch who gave our good friend Benjamin Cavallari a CD with his music. This is what motivated me to come up with this new contest. There's a lot of talent out there, and if I can give him a platform, let's do it. Stay tuned and visit our website, veritasradio.com, for more information. Something else for 2012. Many of you have asked me to identify many great prospective guests around the world who don't reside in the usual English-speaking countries like uh, the UK, the US, Australia, New Zealand, etc. Rest assured that we don't have any geographical limitations. Furthermore, we are working in new logistics that will bring translators to the show. That way, we can bring new information out to you and use the services of a translator in order to get it done. It's not the usual flow, but if someone has something important to say, 
regardless of where they are, we need to start dropping the language barriers so we can expand our horizons. These are some of the new and exciting things that you can expect for 2012. We're growing and evolving, all because of you. And one last thing. Remember the Inside Veritas program that we aired during last December, where you asked me questions? Many of you are already asking me if I plan to do another one this year. As you know, I like to get out of the way and let our guests do the talking. At the same time, last year's show and your questions made a big difference. It gave me an opportunity to reflect, and you submitted great questions. So let's do it again. I will start preparing on this at the beginning of November, in just a few days, so that you can start submitting your question. And I will air the show on December 23rd. So stay tuned for more on this and much more. 2012 will be an exciting year. And if you need to get in touch with me, click on the contact button of our website and also join me on Facebook. Dan Sherman was a United States Air Force security policeman who is slowly recruited into level one gray operations with the National Security Agency. Sherman's recruitment begins with a shocking revelation, not by channeled information, but from an officer of the NSA, that he was genetically tampered with while still in his mother's womb in order to bring about an intuitive communicator who can communicate with aliens via code. The NSA had been secretly trying to engineer what they deemed as the next human step in communication with aliens into unknowing subjects in the 1960s, of which Dan is but one. The NSA basically let alone these subjects until the age of 25, at which time, by a process of seeming synchronicities, they were brought closer within the fold of secret intelligence. Every move they make proceeds down the well-oiled lines of behavioral science and very tight, practical, need-to-know scripting. What unravels is that Dan Shermer's life had been engineered at a distance by the military, watching him at every step along the way all his life in order to eventually recruit him into the secret ops. For this and much more, Dan Sherman is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas Radio. Don't go anywhere. Dan Sherman spent almost three years as an intuitive communicator while serving in the United States Air Force. Tonight, he will tell us about his training, things he learned, 
from his alien contacts and the events that led him to seek a discharge from the Air Force. By coming forward, Dan hopes his story will encourage other insiders to do likewise. Dan served over 12 years in the United States Air Force and has been recognized for heroism and has been decorated with the Air Force Commendation Medal and the Air Force Achievement Medal with two oak leaf clusters. He has also received the Air Force Outstanding Unit Award with three oak leaf clusters as well as being honored for service in the Persian Gulf. Dan is married and has two children. And directly from a desert, somewhere in the United States Southwest, just like me, I would like to welcome for the first time on Veritas, Dan Sherman. Hello, Dan, and welcome. How are you? Hi, Mel. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. It's my pleasure. And before we start, let me say thank you for your service to our country. Well, thank you. I appreciate that gesture. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Tonight, we'll be discussing a lot of information. And as I've read your book, and I've read it before, and I read it again, I want to tell the audience that Dan doesn't care if you believe or you don't believe. He's just sharing his story. And this is exactly what we do tonight. Dan, before we start, give us some background of yourself, uh, your childhood, growing up, and what motivated you to join the Air Force? Well, um, I, I, was, I had a pretty um, rough childhood. Uh, to say the least, uh, we were pretty poor, um, had some abuse going on. Um, you know, it, it wasn't by any means an idyllic childhood. Um, but when I was in about fourth or fifth, uh, fourth or fifth grade, something like that, um, we managed a stables, a horse stables around, um, it was in uh, Yuba City, which is near the um, Air Force Base of uh, Beale Air Force Base mm-hmm. in the Valley of California. And one of the SR-71 pilots, um, he uh, stabled his horses at the stables that we managed. And so I would talk to him all the time, and I was just enamored with this person. I mean, I, you know, he, he was my hero, and uh, you know, he was in the paper. He got to meet President Carter because he set the speed record between West Coast and East Coast. And it, it was, he was you know, quite the man. And um, from that point forward, I decided that I was going to be in the Air Force. And he pretty much instilled that in me in our discussions. And, and I found out later that, you know, that might have been a plant in my life to go forward and, and go into the Air Force. You know, I can't, I don't know that for sure, but um, it certainly fit into the mold. I don't know if you've heard of the story of uh, Sergeant Clifford Stone, but I, I find a similarity in the fact that you think that life, your destiny was going as you thought, but in the end, in retrospect, you may be looking back and, and thinking, maybe that Air Force officer was there as part of the master plan. You think it was part of it? Yeah, I think it's it was uh, quite possible. I mean, you know, there's no way for me to know for sure, but but knowing what I know now, based on what I went through, it was entirely likely that there was some sort of guidance there from from uh, a higher source, so to speak. And at the beginning of your book, you, you clearly state that the subject of your experiences is wide open to ridicule and, and ostracizing, and you suffered with <laughs> yeah. that. It's one of the biggest reasons why more people have not made the, their experiences known. You were different. Why did you come forward? Well, yeah, I went through a, a pretty lengthy uh, mental process to come to come to the decision to come out with my story. I, I really, you know, I'm a, I'm a business person um, 
first and foremost, as far as professionally goes. So, you know, having a story like a life story like this does not exactly um, ingratiate yourself <laughs> wonderfully with with uh, people who are in the mainstream, so to speak. Yep. Now, of course, you know, you, you, you become a rock star in certain uh, circles of life, but um, not in the ones that you have to deal with on a daily basis. So it was, it was really extremely difficult for me to come to that decision to actually reveal what I knew and what I experienced because of that. I mean, you just, you become, or you, you can become part of the fringe crowd when you discuss things like this. So, yeah, it was difficult. And it's almost as if you have an alter ego. As you say, in certain circles, you're accepted. In certain circles, you're disinvited or invited out of social gatherings if you start speaking of these French subjects. But just that's part of life. But yeah. Project Preserve Destiny, what was it and why are you speaking out once again? Um, well, you know, the, just to let people know, this book came out... Um, I guess about 14 years ago now. So yeah. it, it has been a while since I, since I actually um, wrote the book and released it. Um, but I, I felt that it was, I mean, it came down to me realizing that this is too big of a story to not let at least my piece of the puzzle out into the public so that if other people have other pieces of the puzzle they can put it together and we can start piecing together this, this grand um, design. And, and, you know, and I, I only know my piece of the puzzle, so it's not like I, I'm, um, I'm feeling like I'm, I'm adding a great deal to it, but at least it's out there and it can be amalgamated and, 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 and assessed and processed and, and turned through the, the system so that, the entire puzzle can come together at some point. And maybe, I, and I do believe at some point we will know the, um, the origin of mankind. We'll know the, the origin of the universe through our, uh, our communications with other beings. And it's just a matter of time. I don't know if it's going to happen in our lifetime, but I, th I think it will happen at some point. And the way I want to treat this interview, Dan, because I know, it's very difficult to to interview you, and I, and I thank you for for accepting my invitation. And you were with my friend Kerry uh, uh, Cassidy uh, a few years ago, so I want to dissect your story as best as we can because this is such a big story, folks. And you have somebody who's a decorated <laughs> military man here telling us the story. And as I said, some people may believe it, some people may not, but. My job is to bring the information out, and I'll do my best to, to get as much as we can in the time frame we have. How did the U.S. government identify you as uh, an intuitive before they assigned you to Project Preserve Destiny for the Air Force and the Na National Security Agency? I don't know that for sure, um, but all I have is uh, I have to go on is what they told me when they brought me into the program when I was in the Air Force, and the the captain that that briefed me into the program, he said that there was, um, as a result of communication that we had with, with alien beings in 1947, well, actually, yeah, I think he told me the year, um, that uh, we, we, as in the government, the U.S. Right. government, uh, instituted a program that would um, 
call a, a certain group of, of humans into, a, into, this, into this program, which ended up being the program that I was in. But what it would do is it would give them the ability to intuitively communicate with this alien race. And so they started to select their targets in the early 60s. And when I say they, it was in concert with the, the U.S. government, and I don't know, maybe other governments too, but you know, I'm just speaking about the American government. Right. Um, but with the American government in, in concert with this alien being or alien race that they had you know, communicated with. And so the, the abduction started early, the early, in the early 60s to identify all these females that were uh, human females that were compatible with the procedure that they were going to undergo. And then they started tracking the ones that um, they had identified as good candidates genetically speaking, and then once they became pregnant, those females became pregnant just in, in the natural course of their lives. Once those, those women became pregnant, they abducted them again during, during the gestation period of, the, of the, the baby, and they did what, they, what he described to me as a genetic management procedure. And they genetically managed these offspring, so they were born naturally, they were all human, you know, 100% human. It's just that their DNA was was manipulated to the point where they could, they had a um, a higher degree of success in this particular thing that they needed them to do, which was intuitively communicate. And when you say abducted, abducted by the aliens or abducted by our my labs? No, by by the aliens. Yeah. Okay. It was an alien technology. And you didn't find out about this until after. And I'll I'll go step by step. At this point. At this point, when you're in the Air Force, you have no idea that uh, your mother and you have been going through this. But were the no. other participants like you? And if so, why do you think they haven't come forward? Um, I, I know that there were other participants because one of them I went through school with. Um, we, were, we were told not to talk to one another. We, we went into the same classroom, but we never spoke to one another. We never, uh, I mean, we had no communication whatsoever. I didn't know him other than through school. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know there's another person, obviously. And, and the, the reason the program was, was started and, and, and um, progressed was to, to set up a network of these people so that they could establish uh, command and control communications in the event of some future thing that's going to happen with electromagnetic communication. So they were this network of communicators. Uh, that wouldn't be able to uh, continue to communicate, you know, for governments and things like that. Now, this is the reason they told me, but, you know, that, that could very well have been a cover story. Who knows? I mean, that's, that's what he told me. Of course. So I know that there are others because otherwise they wouldn't have a network to, <laughs> to establish. So, yes, there are other ones. Now, the reason why they haven't come forward, I have no clue. I mean, they could be still in the military. Um, I mean, if they're if they're part of this program to establish a network of communicators, then perhaps they uh, stayed in the military. Now, at some point, their age is going to catch up to them, and they're not going to be in the military anymore. So I, I don't know. Who, in your opinion, after being with the Air Force for so long, Dan, and going through, through the project that not a lot of people go through, do you have any idea who the guardians of this information are? You mean human? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, human or non-human? <laughs> well, um, 
within the within the military, I, I think there's and I, and I go through this in the book where I talk about the the onion effect of security classifications and how they hide all the different levels compartmentalized. Yeah, they they compartmentalize, but but they compartmentalize even more than what your your average security person might know, you know, or, or average uh, um, a military aficionado might know. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, based on the compartmentalization, there are certain factions within the government that hold this information, and and they're not even they're not even known by the people that are higher than them in the normal government. So like, you know, the president or, you know, different, different levels of, of the, the civilian government. Sure. So it's, it's, um, <laughs> it's quite elaborate. Let's just put it that way. It's an extremely elaborate program and it, it all, it all rides on the back of the need to keep black classified information, you know, like, uh, advanced weapon systems and and you know research and, and development and technologies and stuff for the for the advancement of truly useful military you know equipment right. and technology. I mean, we we have a need to keep that secret and to even keep it secret from the American public because if the American public knows about it, then of course our enemies know about it. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's it's a very very handy <laughs> way to hide things that that you truly don't even want to know, have people know, even within the government. Mm-hmm. So it's quite handy. And when someone is assigned to an alien project, they're also assigned to the collateral black mission or co- cover mission. Mm-hmm. Explain that. Yep. Well, there's, <clears throat> there's a cover of a cover. Um, when you go by a base, a military base, an Air Force base, or an or a Army base, or wherever, um, there's, there's different levels of classification on that base. Now, most bases are just basically for official use only. And that's their, their essentially their only classification for most bases. Um, your typical army base, you know, where you have a bunch of personnel for um, staffing the tanks and, you know, the, the ground troops. Basically, if you um, have a need to go on the base, you can go on the base. There's nothing to hide there. It's just for official use only, basically. And they, they, the only thing that would be kept from the enemy is timelines and maybe deployments and stuff like that. But it's very, very basic. But then there are other bases where you have a secret mission, which re- requires a little bit more of a, of a uh, need to know and access and control and maybe better, better secure comm lines and, you know, things like that. And then, but then that secret um, classification at that base is covered by the, phys- uh, their f- by the for official use only um, classification. And then some other bases might have a top secret mission there, which is covered by the secret and the for official use only. And then you have the black missions, which are covered by the top secret and the secret and the for official use only. So there's several different missions. At a, at a base that has a black mission, um, there are many, many different levels of people who need to know certain things that are going on at that base. And they may work right in tandem with somebody who knows something else that they don't know. So it, it's, it's, quite, it's quite elaborate. And then, of course, the great projects, the ones that have to do with alien technology or alien beings or anything having to do with aliens, um, that is co-located. It has to and must be 
co-located with the Black Project. Um, uh, top secret, or um, the lower levels of secrecy, they don't necessarily have to be co-located with something that's a little lower than them. But with the Black Project, they have to be, I mean, a Gray Project, they have to be co-located with the Black Project because of the, the security levels and budgetary restraints that they have. They have to be able to cover the... Um, the budget of the gray project with the black project, which in and of itself is classified for just very, very few people in the government. So right. yeah, it's, it's, it's quite elaborate. I understand, but I cannot totally understand. You have a, a curious Senator or a Congressman that starts asking questions about you and about what you're doing. Well, you're going to tell them about the black project you're, you're, you're involved with, but you're not going to tell them about the other Project. So this is the the reason to keep these two projects separate to avoid the public from finding out. Is that what you think it is? Yeah, and and even within the Gray Project, you are only authorized to speak about that project with your immediate supervisor. That's it. You can't even talk to people who you may think are in the same project. You can't even mention it to them. So it's not like a, you have a group of of people within a room that are all working on the same project, you know, the, the gray project. Right. I mean, that may, that may happen in other places, but I never saw it. Right. And the, the only person that I was ever authorized to speak to about it was my immediate supervisor. Okay. And that was it. So as far as I was concerned, him and I were the only ones that knew about this thing. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true, but, but in, my, in my world, that was it. There was nothing written down, no paperwork, no electronic items, no nothing that you can actually take out and prove what you were you were working on. Okay. So when you first learned of your role in, in uh, folks, I'm going to start referring to Project Preserve Destiny as PPD. When you found out about PPD, you were very proud. You were in a position of knowing that aliens do exist. How did it feel to find out? Yeah, it, it was... Um you know, it, it was just kind of like out of a spy novel. You know, when you, you read, when you're a kid, you read these uh, novels about how the hero and they, they uh, come to the aid of the country and, and save the country. And, you know, it wasn't quite as grandiose as that, but it, it definitely felt like you were, you were part of a, um, a very small core people that, that Elite. knew. Yeah. That, that knew something that nobody else did. And even, you know, even within my, my regular job, you know, I worked on black projects and stuff. So uh, it was that same sort of feeling, but even, but even more so, you know, it was even higher and, and less people knew about it. So yeah, it was, it was a, it was an interesting um, feeling to go through. I, I had a lot of reservations at first. I had these doubts, like maybe I was um, being punked <laughs> or, <laughs> right. you know, it, it was a initiation ritual or something and people were going to jump out of the closet and say, ah, you believe that alien thing. Ah. Yeah. Um, so I, I had to go through that uh, realization, but then when it finally kind of hit that, no, this is true and this is what's happening and, and it's, it's real. Then, yeah, you have this sense of um, a little bit of a sense of superiority since you, well, and in this case, I was genetically, different. So, you know, that had all the implications of that, you know, you have to think about, well, you know, you, you just recently had that green Hornet uh, movie come out 
and you know what he went through when he he realized that he had these these superpowers and stuff. Of course, I didn't have superpowers, but you know you you have that same type of feeling like, wow, I'm special. Did you ever do a DNA test to to compare you to a normal human? Well, you know, people have asked that before, and, and you know, I'm I'm open to having any type of testing done, but. If you think about it, you have to know, I mean, you have to know what you're testing for. Right. Because even people who, you know, genetic researchers, when they're researching the genetic markers for certain diseases, they don't even know where to go. It's just a, um, a trial and error, and they know exactly what they're looking for. In this particular case, they wouldn't even know what they were looking for. <laughs> right. So... It's just like some people who are smarter than others. They're still human. Maybe they just uh, improve certain parts of your DNA. They're still human, but they're just yeah, improved. certain combinations of the DNA. I, exactly. you know, I don't know. I'm, a, I'm not an RNA DNA expert, but right. uh, you know, at some point, if some DNA genius egghead wanted to, to test my DNA against whatever they think they could be testing it for, I'm all for it. Sure. And uh, I'm always curious, did you have any trouble after you started talking? Harassment, threats, etc. No, no. Um, you know, there, I have one story. It's pretty funny. Um, I mean, now that I look back on it, but it was a little, a little uh, unnerving at the time. But um, I was talking to, of all people, the Howard Stern um, production people. They were, they were thinking about um, having me on to, you know, probably ridicule me. But yeah. anyway, um, I, I got off the the phone with the, one of the production assistants and. About, I don't know, maybe 30 seconds later or something like that, I get a phone call on the landline there at work where I was at. And um, it, was, it was somebody that's, and, and this is a long time ago, so I can't remember exactly what they said, but they said something to the effect of, let's not take this any further. Hmm. And then they hung up. And I, I, I was taken aback, like, wow, you know, I, I had written the book. It had already been come out. It already... You know, I'd already given interviews and I had done conferences and spoken in front of, you know, thousands of people. But I get on the phone with Howard Stern's people and they finally, they finally decide to say something, I guess. I don't know. I, but nothing ever came of it. Nothing later. I mean, that was the only thing that is. So they pulled the plug that you didn't show what you didn't appear on Howard Stern. They pulled the plug. No, I, no, I, I we, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't do that. Interview, okay. So. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I didn't do it. It wasn't because of that. It's just that they they didn't pursue the the interview. So maybe they didn't think there was enough to ridicule there. I don't know. Right, right. Or <laughs> or maybe putting this. To, uh, you were already being ex exposing too much, and and you know having the audience that he had, they didn't want to expose it even more. But you, you say yeah, that. Yeah, that's what I assumed. Yeah, you say that finding out that we're not alone in the universe is exciting for anybody. But the other things you learned may not be so enchanting and you learn some things there's always a price to pay for knowledge why why do you say that um well I, i'm not exactly sure what i, I know what you mean um what, what are you referring to are you referring to something i said in the book or yes yes there were some positive things that you learned from the aliens but there are also some negative things that you learned from the aliens as well well not so much um you know a, an overpowering negative but um, just in, in, in the, um, in the closing months, I guess, of my, my service before I got out, um, I started to receive communications that 
that related to abduction or what I felt was abduction data yeah. and, and, you know, pain levels. And, and one of the fields that I was reporting was residual pain levels. And so there, there had to be some sort of pain going on if they were reporting pain levels. So this became a little bit disconcerting for me and I, I started to question it and that's what kind of got the ball rolling for me to get out yeah and hold um, it hold it there because i don't want to give it away yet because that's sure. that's very that, i'll leave that to the end but, that, but that's what that's yeah. what happened in the end but i'm so glad we're talking because there, there's a group of people out there in the ufo circle that says that all aliens are benevolent and there's another group that says they're all malevolent i'm in the middle just like we have good people we have bad people and we may have some positive traits and some negative traits uh, yeah. but going back to to ppd in what year did you start with the project and i ask you because you say that when you entered the nsa building for the first time they were using a retina scanner that didn't come out to the public for many years later right yeah yeah um well i can't um one of the one of the the stumbling blocks to me releasing this information was that I, and, and this is exactly how it's designed, so that people can't come out and talk about their experience with the Gray Project uh, without revealing stuff that they can or they will bring you up charges on for revealing. So it's kind of this piecemeal reveal that is very, very frustrating for the reader and frustrating for me because I, I can't, you know, I can't just lay everything out on the line. So one of those things that puts me kind of in a bind is the dates and times and bases mm, okay. that I was at. Um, because I, although I can say that I was stationed at XYZ base, I can't say I was stationed at XYZ base while I was in the gray project, which would reveal that the fact that I was with the black project as right, well at the right. same time, because, you know, by nature of what I was saying with the onion effects. So um, it's really difficult for me to, put times and dates on things. But, you know, if somebody read my record, you know, my, re my military record, and they can see the, the bases that I was stationed at and the, the times and dates, I just can't say them in the same breath that, you know, of the, of the other stuff. It's a very, very ginger uh, tightrope that I'm walking here. No, I understand. And, and, and there may be questions that I asked you where you have to, you know, put a yeah. stop, but that's okay. It's just that we don't have censorship here and I want to go as far and as deep as we can. But uh, yeah, and you, you know, you, you're always, let's say, you're skating on thin ice all the time when you're talking, you have to watch it. Um, yeah. During your first meeting with uh, Captain White, and we'll get into the specifics, he said that in 1947, we made contact with an alien species. Was that the first time that we made contact or was he just referring to that specific species? Um. My understanding at the time, and, and when I look back on it when I wrote the book, my understanding was that it was an initial contact, but I don't remember him saying specifically that, and maybe it's just an inference, and maybe it was just my, my own understanding of it that, you know, I assigned that meeting, but um, I did believe that, that, that he was saying that it was the first contact. So if they started bringing people like you to the to the uh, to the fold if you will so that they could get assistance in communicating how did they communicate with them if the communication system was not in place well i i don't think that it was it, the intuitive communication was the only way to communicate um 
I think it was in absence of electromagnetic ability to communicate over far distances that we, we would be used. Um, so, I mean, in a one-to-one situation where it's just sitting in front of you, there is a way to communicate. And there's probably a way to communicate via electromagnetic energy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it wasn't a, an all-or-nothing situation. It was just in, it, when this particular thing happened, we need these particular people to do this, this task. Right. So, right. And I don't know what that thing was. Did they ever mention Roswell or any crash retrievals? No, he didn't. No, he didn't say anything about about the you know the initial communication in and of itself. But and I didn't even when he said when he mentioned 1947 at the time, I didn't even assign it or any meaning. You know, right. I just heard 1947. I didn't. I didn't even know about Roswell, or or if I did, I you know I wasn't even thinking of that. So. Well, the general public didn't even find out about Roswell until the 70s when uh, Stan Friedman started talking about it. So that was yeah. decades later. But uh, yeah. going back to the book, we we learned that good things and bad things uh, were being told by the you know from the graves. You were brought to the project because of the bad things we learned. Can you share what those bad things were and the good, if you wish to? Well, um, are you talking about the the future event that might happen that that would precipitate us needing the the electrum or the um, intuitive communicators no. that you're referring to? No, it was more of a generic. Uh, you were mentioning how you were brought to the to the uh, program because of some of the negative things that uh, uh, the government learned of the Greys. I wanted to know what those negative things were. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I, I don't think uh, there was. I'm not remembering anything negative that they learned. Okay. Uh, the, the reason the reason for and this is what, how as it was told to me. And, you know, of course, this could be a cover story, and I have no idea. But sure. what they told me was that they would need the intuitive communicators. They started the project because of um, some future event, and mm. he just said a future event right. is going to wipe out all electromagnetic communications. There's not going to be any electro, no way to communicate via electromagnetic waves. So, you know, that, that basically eliminates all communication. Because I see. everything that you do, communication-wise, has to do with, with electricity and, and, and electromagnetic, electromagnetic waves. So um, we, they were going to have to have this network of people that were going to be the communicators between, you know, the, the governments and, and, and um, strategic points of interest and all that stuff. So um, that was the reason. Now, that, that can be also very much construed as a negative thing, obviously, because if electromagnetic communications have wiped, been wiped out throughout the world, that's definitely a negative. Something has happened that, that's not, not good. I, I see what you mean. I, I, bad choice of semantics on my part. What it meant was that there's a future event that would be negative for us, but uh, nothing negative coming from the graves. But, you know, it's so interesting that you were discussing this back then, and they were discussing it back then, because, uh, for example, a couple of weeks ago, I had uh, Dr. Paul Laviolette on the show, and we discussed the Carrington event that happened in 1859, where we lost, if we had had electricity, we would have lost it for 10 years. If we get a massive solar flare, the entire planet could be without electricity for over yeah. 10 years. So this is so true. You know, I yeah. wonder if they were predicting something that may be happening very soon. 
Well, you know, I, if you put the timeline together, you know, I'm 47 yeah. and, and they, they started these, these, um, you know, in the abductions and the, and the, the, uh, genetic management procedures and stuff in the early sixties. And I, I believe they stopped at 19, I think it was 66 or 67, something like that. It's been a while since I read my own book. <laughs> so, <laughs> All right. Yeah, somewhere around there. Um, so if, if, those, if those timelines are in place, then, and they're going to use these people for the electromagnetic, I mean, for the intuitive communications, then they're gonna, it's going to have to be within the next, I would say, at least 20 years for us to be alive still, I mean, in mass anyway, uh, in order to, to do that communications. So um, I would say between right now and, you know, 20 years from now, I believe that that's when this, whatever it's, whatever it is. And that's even if they were telling me the truth, it may, right. it could have had a completely different reason for it. Of course. So, uh, but, you know, there's, there's several different things that can precip- precipitate ta- that type of event happening, an asteroid strike or a, a pole shift or, or a, a huge massive solar flare. I mean, there's, or a quasar type of thing, you know, that hits our, our solar system. So there's just, there's a lot of what ifs there, I guess. That's right. That's right. And, you know, it's important to understand that, uh, this is right now in the news. We hear about 2012. We hear about the underground bases, yeah. and yeah. it becomes more and more plausible. And I have a contact who told me that Bechtel, the and people who listen to the show know that I sound like a broken record. They've been building underground bases, uh, you know, not even bases, cities for decades. And it makes you wonder if the trillions of dollars that are lost go for that. But that's a different story. So I, I asked you at the beginning why the government had chosen you. And it was, in my opinion, because your mother had been abducted for tests in 1960. And in 1963, she was abducted again for the genetic procedure while you were in, mm-hmm. in the womb. Did the government know of these abductions then? In other words, were they aware that the aliens were experimenting with, with your mother, or did they find out later? And if so, why? How? No, I, I believe that it was all it was all in concert with one another. Uh, the The government knew that it was happening, and they were tracking. I mean, they would get the information from from this alien race, mm-hmm. you know, that they were that that were actually doing the abductions. And they compiled a database of people that they would follow um, throughout their, you know, their formative years. And that's why I say, you know, that person that was put into my life from the Air Force Base, he could have been a plant, so to speak, within the program to push me in that direction. To start the um, snowball. Yeah, I think I think they just were going off of demographics. They, you know, they had. I don't think they have any way of knowing when you're in the womb, whether you're going to be going in the military or not at some point, and, and you're going to get into a position to be pulled into the program, because you have to be really, essentially you'd have to be in the military in order to do this through a, a clever and, and secretive way. Um, so they were basically just going off of demographics, and my mom was a, uh, a good bet because she was, uh, from a poor family, and and typically, especially back then, poorer people went into the military than right. people who had money. Um, and so, you know, they just went off the demographics and, and the the statistical averages, and 
And I'm sure, I'm absolutely positive that there are thousands of people who um, were uh, part of this program but never went into the military, so they were never called for the um, for that you know that program and, and went into the service. So there's plenty of you out there that <laughs> had this genetic management procedure, but you never went into the military. Right, right. And maybe the, the attributes were not used that they know of. But you say that in January of 63, it was the first successfully managed embryo that was produced uh, under the PPD supervision. Was that you? No, no. It, no, he, he, I, I believe he just gave me the year. I don't know exact month, probably. But um, yeah, it, it, was, it started in January, I mean, uh, in 63. I was born in April of 64. Mm -hmm. So, mm, okay. Um, I well, was, yeah, but they were working on the embryo before you were born. Yeah, yeah. So it was in, in my my procedure or whatever you want to call it um, right. probably happened in late '63. Yeah. Right, right. So it could have been you then. Could have been. Who knows? Yeah. But you know, there were probably thousands of them. So statistically oh, wow. speaking, it might not have been. <laughs> wow. Okay. And, and do you think that this uh, the PPD? Do you think that this was happening in more than the United States? Maybe another country. Um. Possible that it was other countries too. Um, I, I, it's not. It's not. Um, I, I wouldn't say that it had to be in other states or uh, other uh, nations because, you know, we have bases all around the world, and I, our people, Americans, can be positioned anywhere, especially if it's a, um, it's a country that is one of our allies, and we want to establish communications network there. Right. You know, in, in case something goes down. Um, so I, you know, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. It could be, it could have been an international thing. I, I suspect that it was probably, um, uh, run and controlled by America and perhaps some of our closest allies were brought into it. But I, I, I again, I don't know that for sure. See, I just always wonder why all of a sudden the United States becomes the de facto ambassador for planet Earth, and that's why I always wonder if other countries, maybe not as developed as the, as the United States and as powerful, could very well be involved as well. Yeah, you know, it's. I, I think that if a, it, I think it only makes sense that if an alien race is coming to to Earth, and they're going to set up a, a surreptitious communications with, so that they don't, you know, they don't disrupt the entire planet with their presence you're probably better off going with the most powerful nation state or group of people or whatever, whatever that entity right. is on that planet. Um, you're probably better off to work with them first. <laughs> so, you know, you sounds, sounds arrogant, but take me to your leader and, uh, you know, that's well, basically yeah. it. Yeah. yeah it, it's, it just makes sense. Uh, I'm even from a, an intergalactic standpoint, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, at one point, you were looking for a non-smoking room for your prolonged stay in Maryland. And the next minute, you were wondering if you were naturally conceived and placed in your yeah. mother's womb by an alien race. How did you feel when you found out about this? Well, um, again, it was it was a sense of, of um, disbelief at first. Yeah. Uh, I was like, well, this, this just can't be. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm being, this is a joke here. Um, but at some point I had to come to that realization and, 
driving home from the meeting, I was uh, I was just pretty much in, in kind of a, a numb shock. Like, what do I do with this information? You know, what I can't I can't tell anybody. I can't talk to anybody about it. Um, what am I What am I to do? You know, you just you kind of put your hands up and you say, "Well, I'm at their mercy. I'm in the military. I'm controlled by them. Um, I'm obviously in something that is going to impact uh, our country, if not the world. So, uh, you know, I need to do the best that I can do. You know, there's a lot of responsibility placed on your shoulders. It's it's um it's just a it's a lot to take in at one time. Of course, it really is. Of course, and I, you know, I was a young guy too, so you know, you you have that to add into the factor too. Yeah. I mean, getting that information now at 47 would be completely different than when you're, you know, when you're young. Sure, you're my uh, more idealistic back then too. The yeah. the, the gray aliens we hear of Seta Reticuli. Did you ever were you ever told where this communication was coming from and where the aliens went uh, came from? No, I, I was never told where they where they were from or what they look like or anything like that. Um, I the only sense that I got was their emotional um, presence, so to speak, and their their way of thinking. Um, I think I got a glimpse of that because of the communications. But as far as physical or anything like that, I, I have no clue. I never saw one. I never, you know, I never. We never discussed exactly what they look like we I, I did ask one time about how <laughs> I know the, these these are just mundane things that you you look back on and go why in the world did you ask that but I, I did ask if they went to the bathroom like us and, right, right. So. <laughs> which is a question by the way Dan that I always have in my mind if I ever because I've heard that craft don't have restrooms so I always wonder do you defecate <laughs> do you how do you eliminate your waste yeah and they, and they said, do. yes, yeah, they yeah. do. Yeah. I yeah. thought for some reason some people had said that they, they're they so efficient in the way that they use energy that they don't need to, to eliminate anything. But you're telling me uh, it could have been a different race. And when you mention gray, are we talking about gray aliens or is that a, 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 a sub-name for the project, you know, black project and gray project? No, that, that was a... Um, a colloquialism, you know, where the, it was just a nickname that, that um, my, uh, both the, the people that were my upper line supervisors, so to speak, or three of yeah, them. Yeah, because they kind of reprimanded um, you. Because one time you said alien and they said, don't ever say that, just say gray. Yeah, 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 it's, it's referred to as gray. And and also slant mission, they, they called it that too. Um, Why were they upset when, when you said alien and they said, don't, don't say that? Why were they upset? Well, he, the, any type of, because we were discussing it, we were talking, and of course we were in a secure area and everything, but, but it was never, you, you ne I mean, it was just part of the, the culture. You never, ever use those types of words because that, that just, it's not, it's not authorized, <laughs> mm. basically. I mean, there's no, there's no reference to what the basis of the program is, no reference whatsoever. Okay. And uh, when you left that first day of, of when you found out, I mean, all of a sudden, folks, you, you enter a room, you, you, you have your paradigm, and all of a sudden it changes. Somebody tells you, yep, we're not alone in the universe. And uh, watch it. You can't talk to anybody. So that first day when you left, you became a little bit paranoid. You, you felt like uh, every car that was following you was following you because they wanted to see if you were going to talk to somebody. How was that first day? Yeah. 
Yeah, that, that's that's one of the things that um, I, I had not not problems with, but I was aware of because I, I was thinking, well, if I'm if I'm so important and I so I, I know so much now, um, there's got to be somebody looking at me, waiting for me to say something. You know, somebody's following me. Somebody's that, that's just part of the the coming to terms with the the knowledge that you now have. Um, I mean, of course, it was it was silly. I mean, they, I don't. Well, maybe maybe they were following me. I don't know. But I, I didn't. After a while, I didn't get a sense that I was being followed at all. And now I'm, I want to get uh, into your brain because one of the, the the things I really liked about your book is that you you're speaking of first person. So we're almost as if we're just imagining everything you went through. But I have a question: H How do you think they have been able to keep the secret hidden for so long? Is it because of the onion effect? Um. Well, you know, I think I think the human condition has helped them um, because the human condition is such that we want to uh, we are gravitated towards um, uh, the unusual, the, uh, the 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 knowledge that we're not alone. We, we gravitate towards that, right. and you know, and and that is that is something that is. Uh, comes out with our belief systems too, you know, religions and and cults and things. We want to have some sort of identification with something, and so when you have thousands of people who um, have different alien stories about being abducted or about um, seeing a UFO or any of the number of th you know stories that we hear every day from people who have something to share with, uh, you know, in this realm, um, that, that muddies the water. So when somebody does come out with really, really, really um, first-person experiences that I've had with the military and, and official, you know, with the government, when, when people do come out with that, it, it essentially gets lost in the, in the din of, of all the other information that's out there that, that probably 90% of it is just somebody's imagination or, or wanting to believe something that, that didn't actually happen. So um, it's, and, and you know, you do have people, you have had people that have said stuff from the military that have come out of the military. And some of it is probably very, very, very valid information that, that is very truthful and that actually happened but it doesn't get the the elevation above the din that it should because there's no way to there's no proof that you can come out with to prove to the people and because of the onion effect so so it's essentially you're just another voice in the wilderness that's right and and it's hard it's difficult the ridicule science fiction yes yeah and and that's why i really i really have stopped discussing this and stopped talking, stopped, um, you know, the, the conferences and, and things like that. It's just because it, it, it's not doing any good. Uh, all it's doing is, is serving to have people look at me and ask me questions. And, and that doesn't do any good in the, in the grand scheme of things. Well, let me just say, I don't mean to interject, but let, let me just say, I'm not you and I can, I can understand to a certain extent what you go through, but as the most open-minded person I know, your information is crucial, not only for you, 
for humanity, but also for the many people, military or non-military, who are out there, Dan, that when they listen to you, they may feel compelled to come forward. As you say, you know, the planet is going through turmoil right now. If there's somebody out there that could come forward and speak some more, and then somebody else speaks some more, and when you join those dots, the wave may not be able to be overturned. So your part is crucial. So I hope that this interview gives you more power to continue. Well, and, and, the, and the reason why I, I did agree to the interview is because it has been a long time, and maybe there's people out there that have not heard the story because it's just been a while since I've, I've been on the, exactly. on the scene, so to speak. So, but it, it's just that um, there's too many people who make a living off of this and, and um, well, and, and I don't begrudge somebody for making a living. Don't get me wrong, but, but I mean, uh, it just becomes, people become so jaded to it because so many people are profiting off of it and it becomes such a commercial thing. So I don't want to, it's, it's a, it's a, a fine line to walk to not appear as if you're trying to commercialize the entire thing. And at the same time, you're trying to put your, your piece of the puzzle out and, and trying to get it to the widest audience possible, which you do. You, in order to do that, you have to do interviews and you have to go to conferences and you have to, <laughs> Well, let's let's not be naive. Let's not be naive. It's the UFO circle is a cottage industry on its own. Let's yes. not be hypocrites about it. But, and I always wonder, what happens if we have this closure tomorrow? What's going to happen to that uh, uh, cottage industry? Who cares about it? Because we won't need any industry after that, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's why, but but that's why I've I've been kind of um, out of the the public scene for so long because I, I just. I just didn't want to be perceived as somebody who has just kept on hammering, 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 and looking like they're trying to profit from it as opposed to getting the information out. So, no, anyway. totally. I totally understand you. Look, we're in the same boat right here. We have a show without any commercials, and we are listener-sponsored. And some people may say, hey, but why don't you just get this information out for free? Well, because we live in a money paradigm. We have yeah. to pay your bills. We have to pay We have to pay our mortgages and, and food and school and so on. So whoever says that to me is just coming from ignorance. That's it. But uh, we, we have to take our, our one and only break soon. But then came indoctrination school for you. And this is a part where we're going to start touching the nitty gritty. By the way, you were taken to a facility, you took an elevator, and instead of that elevator going up, it went down. So I presume it's an underground facility. You asked uh, a superior the question that I would always ask, why isn't this information out there for the public uh, to consume. And they give you the same canned thing. Well, it's because, you know, for security reasons, religion, the the, the world markets could, could be uh, affected by it. Do you think that it's a canned answer? Or is it because we're protecting the interests of, say, oil companies or, you know, are others that would lose if this information came out? Well, I, I personally think it has to do with power. Um, but... But I don't think it necessarily has to do with the nefarious power. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think man, or, um, the condition of man is such that um, if, if it wasn't put in check or if it wasn't um, kept in check, it could devolve pretty quickly into um, pretty much misery around the world. So, because, you know, you have despots and, and, and people who would, you know, Hitler types and 
Saddam Hussein types, you know, people like that. And I believe that um, the American hegemony of, of power is such that it keeps, although it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, it keeps the world on even keel. And, and I believe that our knowledge, our gray knowledge, probably cements our, possession, our position in that, in that delicate balance. And so, um, although there may be other reasons, I think that that is a, a fairly a fairly good reason to keep things like this from the public. Now, that's now that's not to say that I I agree with it per se, um, because I think that the government or the um, the people should know more. If there's an alien race out there that's communicating with us, which I know for a fact is true then we should know at least something about that. We don't need to be told uh, the, the military technology that we got from that race to keep things in equilibrium and, and to keep us in power uh, on, on Earth, but we need to know, a, we need to know at least that, that they exist and, and you know, we have had communication with them. It's something, you know, something that should be a part of humanity's um, knowledge base. You know, we should be told as humanity that that is going on. So, but I, back to your original question, I think that that's the reason why it's kept from us. And, okay. and I, I don't think that, I, I think they think that that is important enough to keep it from us. I think if disclosure ever happens, Dan, that it's not going to come from our government. It's going to come at a grassroots level. And if we ever get it from our government, I think I have a feeling it may be a false flag event. And I just don't seem to to, to trust what they may tell us. But that's a different story. Yeah. When we come back, folks, we're going to get into the nitty gritty. We're going to talk about some of the things that Dan communicated with the aliens. He discussed time, religion, interbreeding, how long they've been here other intelligent life in the universe, sex, lifespan, energy, and much more. And the book is entitled Above Black, Project Preserve Destiny, an insider account of alien contact and government cover-up. I highly recommend it. How can people get it, uh, Dan? Oh, it can be gotten from Amazon and, and you know, just a normal. It's on Kindle and um, Barnes & Noble and, you know, Borders. And... and your website too, right? You have a website, aboveblack.com, correct? Yeah, aboveblack.com, yep, we have that website too, so you can go there and, and there's links to all the other places that you can go to to get it. Excellent. Well, folks, we don't have that many people that come to this show directly from the military who are telling us this story, and I look forward to exploring it more, so I hope you join me in the member section. This is Mel Fabregas. You're listening to Veritas, and I'm here with Dan Sherman. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We'll continue this interview with our special guest in our member section. If you're not a member, just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the member section. Enjoy. In your mind you have capacities, you know, to telepath messages through the vast unknown. Please close your eyes and concentrate with every thought you think Upon the recitation we're about to say 
occupants of interplanetary craft Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft Planetary 
This is Grant Cameron, and you're listening to The Veritas Show.